What's up, guys? You're listening to Corrales Radio, and I'm your host, Jeff Godbold from Godbold Exotics. Before we get into it, you guys need to know who sponsors the show because that's what makes all this possible. So starting off, let's say you got some time to kill, you want to get your read on, reach out to Eco Publishing at www.ecouniverse.com. They've got a large assortment of books that are species-specific or specific to different types of reptiles. If you've got time to kill, they got the answer. Cold-Blooded Cafe, guys. I've told you guys time and time again, if you're looking for feeders, you need to reach out to Forrest at Cold-Blooded Cafe. I've said it on my podcast. I've said it on the YouTube channel. His prices and his quality can't be beat. And if you use my last name, Godbold, as a coupon code, you'll get 10% off your first order. Now to cages. Guys, we've teamed up with some of the best cage companies here in the U.S. We've got Reptile Basics Incorporated, Dragon Hoss Caging, Sea Serpents. They've all got their little spin on caging and things that make them unique and a cut above everybody else. But they're great guys. They do honest work. Rich over at Reptile Basics, he can get you anything for your collection. Maybe it's not cages or racks you're after. He's got anything for your husbandry needs. You want something custom done. Well, Doug over at Dragon Hoss is the guy to reach out to. You can give him any dimension. He'll make it in a faster turn time than anybody else. And he's a West Coaster, so he can hand deliver it to you. If you're looking for incubators, guys, those hot box incubators can't be beat. The Sea Serpents incubators, his racks, his cages, they're all very high quality. I can't say enough good things about these guys. I put my reputation on them. So those are our sponsors. They are what makes Corrales Radio possible. Now, let's get on to the fun stuff. Let's hear from our guests. Hey, how's it going? Good. How you doing, Jeff? Great, great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud and clear. Awesome. So, uh, for those of you that are listening to this, um, we uh, having, I guess this is kind of a round two with Keith McPeak. Um, last time, I think we talked a little bit about your experience with bloods and or short tails, but uh, we talked a lot about Argentine Argentine boas. Yeah. So tonight, uh, I really, um, as most of you that listen to the show know that I do like other things that are different from Amazon tree boas. Um, I wanted to get into talking about uh, Russian burgeri or the black tail tree boas, um, which are Corallis. So we're on topic there. But I also wanted to get into talking about Keith's experience with uh, Bull and I. As many of you that follow him on social media, uh, you see a lot of the posts that are pretty well thought out. Um, uh, for lack of a better term, I would call a lot of your posts, Keith, great reading material if you're on the, on the, uh, on the toilet. Because <laughs> they, they are long and they require a little bit of thought from the reader. So right. anyway, hoping we can get into that and uh, maybe talk, uh, if we have a little bit of time left, we'll talk about uh, your experience with Moluccan uh, scrub pythons, because that's probably my favorite python species. So uh, anyway, before we get into the meat of the show, for you guys that have bought uh, Corrales Radio t-shirts, uh, I just wanted to say thank you um, personally. Uh, I just got all the shirts in yesterday. So this week and probably next week, I'll be shipping those out uh, to the people that uh, bought them. 
so thanks for your, um, it, you know, probably about five to six dollars of the price goes towards uh, helping out run the podcast. Uh, Anchor is the main uh, format that I use. Uh, it's free. I like it. It's better. Um, and it's, uh, that's what I've tried to switch everything over to. Um, and it's, uh, it's such that I can edit it like a, uh, like a YouTube video. It doesn't need to be, um, we don't have to set out an allotted, you know, hour and a half, uh, and, and it's not live. So I've had guests that have said, you know, I got 25 minutes one night and I've got 45 minutes the next night. Cause I got something going on with kids. And we didn't, we've been able to do stuff that way. So I like that a lot, but there's been a couple times where anchor has not worked and, um, it's much more reliable than blog talk, but, uh, I still have my blog talk, uh, subscription. So that's about 600 bucks a year. So for those of you that are wondering where your money's gone, that you've bought t-shirts or you've sent 20 bucks here and there that goes to helping out with that. So I really appreciate it. All right, enough with the boring stuff. How you been, Keith? I've been doing really well, Jeff. Um, taking a little break from social media, actually, well, Facebook in general, to try to reconnect with my snakes again because <laughs> um, I do get distracted with that. So I've been uh, taking a little break for a couple weeks there, but I'll get back into it soon enough. Um, but I'm sure you can relate to that and the connection you want to get back with the animal. Just focusing on them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm an appraiser, so I appraise houses, and yeah. I work. I, I work for myself, and there's a few months out of the year that are very slow, typically December to February. Um, right. But like right now, I'm. I have like to put it into perspective. I worked last night till 4:30 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, that's crazy. I went to bed at 5 a.m. and then I woke up, I think, at like 8.30 and had to get another report to the to the bank by 1 p.m. So there's a few It's like months. feast or famine, right? It's like feast or famine. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I haven't had a lot of time to really get connected with my snakes. I've got a snake building that I'm, that I'm having built in like right. a month. And I'm hoping that will be nice because then I can move stuff out of the house. Right. And, and uh but anyway, so could you give everybody a little, um, for those that may, I think a lot of people know who you are. Um, so I don't really need, think you need to go into like how you got into reptiles, but maybe you could just give everybody a breakdown of what you're currently working with. All right. So, you know, as you know, I was very heavy into bloods and short tails for many, 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 many years, like, you know, probably 25 to 28 years, you know, I've really focused just on bloods and short tails, but I've always had this or that in the collection, but you know, my main focus was mainly on those species. And, you know, the time came where I just felt like I've taken it as far as I could go. Um, my family was growing and expanding in the way of um, adding son-in-laws and then eventually grandbabies and all that kind of stuff. So I want to spend more time with pam uh, family. So I decided to, you know, get rid of the very large collection of blood and short tail pythons and then move into species that um, have always intrigued me that would be a little harder to breed and maybe harder to keep in captivity. 
And I thought I would keep that collection very small and very limited and very specialized. And of course, any collector can relate that does not happen. <laughs> so um, it's nowhere near as large as it was then. But, you know, one of the first species that um, I wanted to work with was bowl and I and, you know, another species that um, I've worked with in the past. And I've worked with a lot of these animals in the past, but very limited um, was emerald tree boas. Um, and then I also wanted a species that was a little bit easier to, to take care of and maintain and, you know, breeding is a little easier to come by and whatnot. So I decided, uh, Amazon tree bows because those also have a good connection with their genetics to Borneo short tails and how things express themselves and line breeding and all those things. So I decided to get those. And then of course I decided to get some other things like rhino rats and hundred flower rat snakes and some Zanata and, you know, some locality boas like Suriname, Guyana, Argentine. Um, I have Woma and, you know, just some odd and end species, the uh, Kendoya that I really like. Um, and, uh, you know, working with those is, uh, just to just to have and maybe breed here and there, but nothing to focus on. My main focus is tree boas and bull and I. Right on. You you kind of have a similar mindset to me. Um, I don't have all the experience you do, but um, it's you know I have kind of like my staple stuff that I'm really into, and then like recently I've really gotten into locality boas for some reason, yeah. like not the morph stuff, but like, right. I've got, no, me I've, either. I've got some longicata, you know, Peruvian long tails, a, a mm-hmm. pair and just stuff that I have like a pair of. Right. But I think a lot of keepers kind of, you know, go through phases. Um, you know, they chase the morph. I chased the morph for many, many years. And then you go back to basics and things that excited you when you first, you know, before there were morphs and such a demand for morphs and creating morphs, you know, we all just loved a boa constrictor for a boa constrictor and a Burmese python for a Burmese python. I think once you are, if you stay in the hobby long enough, you'll go through your phase of chasing the morph, but then you kind of go back to basics in a way where you just want real nice examples of um, species that mother nature created, you know, and that's, definitely where i'm at now and i see a lot of my peers in the industry kind of going that way themselves and uh you know it's just kind of how i think we as keepers progress you know for sure that's kind of what happened to me with amazons is i mean i didn't have like every morph but i had a bunch of morphs and now all i have are calicos and half of the calicos that i have i'm not sure they're calicos so, right. I mean, they were sold to me as calicos, but I'm not like I have one I bought as a low expression calico and I bred them. Now, granted, it was a really small sample. So I only had a litter of two, but I don't think the the red one that came out is a calico, but it's like brick, brick red. So we'll see. What we'll happens. see right. See right there what you said. So so what I like about the morphs in amazon Drebo is isn't to create more morphs because anybody can do that anybody can take a tiger breed it to a, anything else and create some tigers but what i do like about the morphs is they do seem to unlock things in amazons um as far as 
maybe the pattern is just slightly different in the normal looking animals or the colors are just a little bit more intense in the normal looking animals. Like, so I like to use a morphs more for that aspect than creating more calicos, more tigers, more leopards, more whatever hypos or whatever, you know? Right. You know, it's weird too, because, um, so speaking of, I know we're kind of, we haven't really gotten into the bulk of this, of what you came off. Yeah, but that's not what, that's what snake guys do. (laughs) (laughs) So you, are you familiar with the marble morph with Amazons? Um, I just recently, I think, uh, who was that that, uh, posted that was that Rory that, uh, um, or, or Bobby Pruitt um, well, or Dayton, Dayton, I think it was, right? D- Dayton's the only guy in the U.S. that has them. They originated yes. from Paris Reptiles over in, right. I think he's in Austria or somewhere over there. I Forgive me if I got that country wrong. But anyway, if you've seen the garden version, they look very different. They've got almost like white like scales kind of along uh-huh. the pattern. Right. And I'm not saying the animal that came out of this supposedly low expression calico is a marble by any stretch. I, I'm right. not, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is of the two babies that came out of that litter, one of them is brick red, which I'd, I'd like to give him a couple shades. He's only shed once or twice um, to see if he starts to develop white um, or it, I don't know if it's a male or female. The other one is in all is like a black garden. And it still has the Halloween pattern. So it has some orange pattern, but the way that it looks is very different than any, in my opinion, any uh, garden that I've, I've seen. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of some of those marbles. So it's, it's, that's one of the things I like kind of to your point is just, there's so much variance. Yeah. And you even see that, I think with like, emeralds like you're really into emeralds i mean the the pattern on a on a northern or a basin or the amount of white can be very different you could get more yellow under the belly than other litter mates you could get black specks coming in i mean it's you know yeah i think there's i guess you know if you're you're a follower of any species and you get the eye for that species you can pick things up to any degree on any species that you want to work with but um, I do see, you know, pretty tremendous variation in emeralds enough so that um, just even keep creating the wild phenotype. You know, there's enough variation there to keep it exciting without trying to chase, um, you know, some morph like the pixel or anything else that could crop up along the way with the emeralds. Um, you know, everybody always goes for the the high white, but. Um, you know, there's, there's animals in emeralds like with that have very deep slashes on the side and there's ones that have very reduced, just spotted white pattern on the back. And all those are really beautiful animals. And when you're a collector as well as a keeper, um, you know, be going into a room with 30 to 40 emeralds and being able to look at all the different variations of just a northern emerald, you know, is exciting and keeps it fresh and, you know, gives you goals to breed towards and, you know, just those natural variations are very exciting to me at this stage of the game, you know? Yeah. And, and that was actually a question I was going to ask you when you were talking about your collection, are you, are you working with uh, basins at all or just Northern? No, you know, just Northerns. So here's, here's the thing. And and when you guys start getting up, like I'm, I'm closing in on 60, right? When I'm, when I, when I, 
uh, January comes around, I'll be 60 years old. So you start looking at animals in a different aspect too, because if you've raised emeralds from red neos, you're looking at a six to eight year investment before you, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Seriously, you're looking yeah. at six to eight years before you're producing with that animal. Um, so at you know, then I'm looking, if I pick up basins now with the price range that they go at them, you're looking at neos. Of course, you'd want something from Ed or Steve Volk, you know, so you're looking at for decent animals, five grand. So you're spending 10 grand that you're not going to be able to, if everything goes right, you're not looking until I'm 70 years old of possibly producing some animals out of that. And to me, I just see so much more for me as a keeper in this stage of the game to work with the emeralds. You know, I have emeralds that are 10 years old right now. I have emeralds that are two years old um, that I'm raising and I have 30 to 40 animals. So I, I have a good base to work with. Now, will I get a pair of basins down the road at some point? Absolutely. But just to have, you know what I mean? Just to have them, just to say that I have them, just to work with them, just to see the differences between them and emeralds and all. But there's no way at this stage of me as a keeper, I would ever even think about getting into them at the point of putting a breeding group together. You know, it's it just, right. just not really feasible for me at this point of the game, you know? Yeah, no. And I totally get that too, because I've heard, you're not the first person that said that I've, I've had, um, uh, I do not know how to pronounce his last name, but it's Bob of the Max Pink Argentines. Guerrero, um, yeah. Yeah. And I was talking to him about some stuff and he was telling me the same thing. He was like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to work with. Like, but like, I'm not some like spring chicken anymore. He's like, I'm getting up there in age. And a lot of this stuff that I'd like to work with, it, it's a, it's a long-term investment. This isn't like yeah. a ball Python that, that you can exactly. read in 18 months to two years and, right. and predict pretty fairly what you're going to get out of it and what you're going to be able to recoup. Right. It's like, you know, same, same thing that you're and, and so I, I don't know. I think for me, it's probably a blessing and a curse. It's a, a lack of space. So there's some stuff that I really, really want to work with two of those species, actually three of the, all of the species we're talking about tonight are species. I would really, really like to work with, um, right. but I don't have the space for them. Right, right now, I, you know, to what they, to what I would deem fair to keep those animals in. Right. And, and let's face it, um, me, there's keepers at all different levels. There's keepers that just like to keep in a naturalistic setup. There's keepers that just want to work with species that are hard to keep. And there's species, and there's some of us that are like keepers of all of that. But I also am such a breeder at heart. I mean, it started with me as a kid breeding chickens and rabbits and you know and just like progressing along the way so the breeder in me is always going to want to create and how are you going to top what ed and steve are producing these days you know <laughs> like know. if i was 20 years old maybe i'd get into the game and 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 want to try to go somewhere with it but at this stage of the game i'm not going to ever in a million years be able to come close to what these guys through all their years of hard work have, have created so I would love to have a pair of basins just to have a pair of basins to understand basins and learn about basins, but it would never be a breeding, um, you know, formula for me from day one in getting into basins, you know? So that's, I guess, why they're always on the back burner for me. Yeah, that's, 
you know, it, I really would like to get a pair of basins, not to, you know, breed them, you know, well, right. oh, well, no, hold on. Let me, let me back up. I would absolutely want to breed them, but it would not right. be, it would not be like. In a creator form, it would be in a learning form to learn would, how to. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and to have the experience. Right. Um, exactly. That's where I'm at. That's, that's how I feel about Boland's pythons. Like, first of all, I'm not, in a, I mean, I got a, I got a, my oldest in college. I've got one that's going to be going into college in two years. And I've got another one that's going into high school in two years. And so I think probably I'm the good news is, is I'm going to be an empty nester probably in my mid forties. Right. So I will still have some, some time to, to get into that kind of stuff. But financially I, I just can't, you know, like I've got no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, and bull and I are not something that you can you can even talk yourself into saying, hey, I will recoup my investment because, let's face it, uh, right now at this point in the game with what we know about Bull and I and what you're capable of doing with Bull and I, you're not going to recoup your investment in three years or possibly ever. If anything, you're looking at losing money with Bull and I. So nowadays, I mean, I've seen nerd advertise younger pairs for anywhere from 12 to 15 grand for a pair of animals. There's not a lot of people that can dump that kind of money into uh, a pair of animals that you have the risk of waking up one morning and they're gone, you know? So yeah, it's a scary thing. And, and, and I got nothing against Kevin McCurley, but I'm pretty sure those animals are coming from babies that are nests that are getting rated. I mean, you, you heard uh, Ari's presentation at Tinley from last October. He said that he's like, they don't want to take the adults out of the nest because the adults are the ones that are producing. Everybody wants the babies. So they just raid the nest and take all the babies. Yeah. Well, yeah. so first let me say Ari is a fantastic friend of mine. He's family to me. Frederick is family to me. They're, they're iconic people in the bowl and I world. And so, you know, I have a lot of inside info from talking to Ari all the time about, um, you know, animals in the wild and, and the, the fact of the matter is the law is, first of all, you can't export any wild caught animals from um, Papua, right? So right. that that excludes, since nobody's captive breeding them, that excludes any animals that aren't neonates, right? So if you yeah. can't export large animals. You can't exp- export young adults. None of that stuff's going to get exported. And, you know, there's a gray area with captive born, farmed, and collected from the wild. They just all fall under that heading of captive born. Um, and to get them out of the country, to get them in Europe and to the United States. So, you know, that's about as far as I want to comment on that. But let yeah, you know, no, no, no. The writing I, I on the it. wall is, you know, pretty much that these things are all collected off a of nest in the wild. They get uh, paperwork that gets them out of the country and over here. And you know what? Not for nothing, but thank goodness for that. For first of all, you know, Ari's thought is, is aside from habitat destruction over there that threatens bull and I. It's they're not an endangered species over in Indonesia. They're just protected and regarded by the local people and and Papua like birds of paradise. So that's why they're restricted from leaving the country. Um, So 
it's good that we're being able to get some into captivity, but it's our duty as keepers to now figure out how to breed them because when that door does close and it will close, if we don't, you know, my grandkids, grandkids won't be able to enjoy these things in captivity one day. So, you know, that's, that's really my goal. That's That was my point is it's kind of a double-edged sword. So like, yes, it's super positive that we're getting them here, but you know, if you're, if you're taking all the babies or the majority of the babies out of the wild, those adults are going to continue to get older and older and older. And that population isn't going to replenish itself naturally because we're taking the majority of the offspring and put them, putting them in, into captivity, which I guess is cool for us. But like, if we're not really what well, we have to, this is, so this is my thought on this. We need to be able to breed them enough to where it doesn't saturate the market, but it makes them a little bit more common to where the price comes down a little bit, a little bit more people can afford them. And to me, that would take a little bit more pressure, i.e. dollar signs, remove the dollar signs from the local people there in Papua to where they didn't feel like they needed to harvest as many babies because there wasn't, it wasn't as lucrative at that point. Right. I don't know. That's, yeah, no, so let me hopefully educate properly based on what I know from Mahari. So th- so let's say there's a quota every year. Uh-huh. So these things can't be just randomly collected by, you know, any local who wants to go out in the wild and collect it. You have to understand there's the habitat to get to these animals is so extreme that there's a very limited collection point. There may be nests that are taken. There may be like 10 nests that only go to every year because only 40 animals are able to be exported every year. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's, so that's a good point. There, there's a very small, there, there may be, let's say, and, I, and I'm guessing here and I'm throwing out numbers, but let's say there's, there's only a hundred acres in all of Papua that are used for these collection purposes. And the rest of the range of bull and I, is living undisturbed except for habitat destruction through uh, gold mining and plantations and, you know, burning forests for future crops and all that kind of stuff. That's the real threat to them. But as far as collecting from the wild, you have so few animals being collected from such a limited area. And the people that collect from those areas, I mean, they guard that with their life because that's their family's livelihood. Right. So it's not like there's a million people going into the woods collecting these things off of nests. And it's very regu- self-regulated by that group of people that are doing it. You know what I mean? It's it's very protected and, and not something that is, um, people are just raping the forests of bull and I babies. Is it, you know what I is mean? it like tribal land? like so that it's it's very it's very guarded um yes and 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 only certain areas can be entered by certain local people and all of that uh comes into play without a doubt that's why it's remarkable that ari has been able to gain the trust of those certain people to get into these areas to do his research and be a part of all of that um that takes years and years and years and years of gaining people's trust and, um, you know, the stars aligning and everybody, everything lucky in the world happening just right so that he could make all those connections to continue going over there and do this work. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And that's something I didn't think about. I mean, I'm sure I've thought about it before, but in the moment of talking, I, I didn't think about it, but yeah, I, I just, you know, I just don't like, I, 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 you know, I get a little worried when I feel like we just see things from the, I guess we, we monetize some things at times and, and I feel like that's just a, uh, an absolute terrible way to look at things when you're, when you're involving living animals, you know, uh, Absolutely. and uh, that's kind of where that was the camp I was coming from. I, I mean, I think it's great that we have them here. I'm not knocking that. I just, you know, anyway, so let's, let's kind of like, you know, transition into um, how you, how you came into Boland, since we're already talking about them, uh, how you kind of came into Boland's pythons and um, maybe, you know, I have no experience with them, Keith. So I don't really know where to start. And I know, and okay. I know you've done a quite a bit of brainstorming and I was just kind of going to let you lead into whatever facet of the species or husbandry that you wanted to start off with and just go from there. You can reel me in any time. Feel free to reel me in at any time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So, so my early connection with bull and I obviously um, back in the like mid late eighties, early nineties, bull and I were like, you know, coming in as adults and bull and I would come into the country and, they'd come into the country so um, beat up and mishandled and abused from neglect for sitting in transport uh, areas and everything that they were basically on death's door. And these animals do not respond to any stress uh, well whatsoever. So typically bull and I would come in, they'd have swollen heads and, you know, stomatitis, the mouth rot and, and be extremely skinny and dehydrated. And they were just so damn rare that people had to have them. And their thought was I can fix this because I'm keeping Burmese pythons and breeding the hell out of them. It's just another Python. So typically people would pay their money back then in those early days. And, Nine times out of 10, I'm going to say 10 times out of 10, the animal would just linger for however long it would take it to slowly die and die. They did and they died left and right. And it gave people the misconception that these animals were just impossible to keep in captivity. And there's no way, you know, you're going to keep them alive, let alone breed them. So things started to change on a couple levels. Um, The first thing that helped the species was Tracy Barker had received a gravid female from the wild that she was able to get the eggs from, hatch the eggs, and then sell the eggs to different, you know, well-established collectors in the country. That was one great first step for establishing them in captivity. And, And Paul Miles um, to everybody's knowledge, is the first person to ever captive breed uh, bull and I 
And I know, I believe Jeff Murray's male was used in that breeding, but I think it was one of the Barker's animals. And I know uh, Paul's female was one of the animals that he raised up from the clutch of Tracy's animals. So everybody thought, okay, here it is. You just need captive born babies established to raise them up and they'll breed for you. Well, Paul is a very good, and please take everything I'm saying tonight with the utmost uh, grain of salt, because <laughs> I respect the hell out of all of these people. I, I, they're the icons of the industry and everything, but I'm just going to lay it on the line in all honesty. So Paul is a fantastic understander of animals. He created some of the first amazing Amazon basin emeralds. He's bred a ton of animals. Well, he's the first to breed bull and I, but Paul was never able to reproduce them again. He did it once and that was it. So you have to wonder, were the, was everything just in line again here? Everything was lucky. Everything, you know, just worked out perfectly and he bred them all. That, you know, it had to be because he, he couldn't have had a great understanding of what his recipe was or he would have been able to do it again and again. Well, well how much was how many when you say successfully reproduced, what was the clutch size and what hatched? OK, so there's yeah, a lot of things are very sketchy. I, I believe the year was 1993 when Paul did it. And I believe Paul um hatched out nine animals but i could be way off on that because a lot of information has gone through my bowl and i and i don't have it written down or anything in front of me um i know one animal was uh uh i don't know if you've brought a lot of pythons every once in a while you'll get one of these babies and it's not really prolapse but it's like a male and it's hemipenes will be dragging behind it no matter what you can do, you can never get them sucked in. I know he produced one animal that was like that. And a friend of mine, Bob Davenport, actually, Paul gave that animal to Bob just to have a bowl. And I and Bob raised that animal. And the animal lived, I'm going to say, about six or seven years and, and got to almost adult size. And then finally, it just withered away. He was never able. And it had a bad kink in the back and all. But the other animals that Paul raised, I think, were fine and went out, I think, um, I know uh, Pete Cull had some, and I, I don't know the various other people that got them, but um, my recollection of history on all those animals, nobody ever reproduced from the animals that Paul produced. Okay. So it, it seemed like it was a very random event, and everything just worked out perfectly that one time. Now, I did visit Paul's facility the year he bred him. And I did get to see those animals. And the female I remember as being huge, like berm-like. You're talking um, about Paul. Paul uh, Miles. Miles, gotcha. Paul Miles was, uh, just for a little background, Paul Miles was um, partners with Pete Cull for many years in the very beginning when uh, Pete Cull and Paul called it the Boa Barn. Gotcha. Um, talking back in the 80s. And they produced some of the first albino boas and... and um, you know, they were like huge back then. And um, they also started breeding all the first, uh, some of the first uh, pie ball, um, ball pythons. And they had a splitting of the ways at uh, some point. And Paul went and continued on with uh, his collection of what he wanted to do. And we all know where Pete went with all his stuff. Um, you know, so that was kind of the history there. Gotcha. But as far as the ball and I are concerned, 
Um, I don't know where those animals who bought them up or whatever happened to them, but there wasn't any breeding again in the United States um, until uh, Mark Spataro and uh, Jim Lawer um, both had success. Now, Jim Lawer, uh, my understanding is, had roughly 40 to 45 Bolani in his collection, um, and he was successful two times. And I don't know if the story or if it's urban myth or uh, just a wives' tale, but um, I heard something got into his collection and wiped it all out. And Paul and um, Jim gave up uh, pursuing breeding bull and I um, just because they can crash and burn very quickly if you do not stay on top of things. But he did breed him twice. But keep in mind, most of the times that people do produce these things, you're, you're talking like they could get possibly you know, 10 eggs that look good and they produce two to one to maybe three animals and that's it. You know, fertility has always been an ongoing issue, even with successful reproduction with these animals. Gotcha. So with that many animals, um, Jim, you know, still was only able to do it two times um, successfully. Um, Mark Spataro has uh tied uh frederick who is my hero in the bull and eye world um with five reproductions but again uh, mark has been plagued with and he hasn't done it in a long time i think it's been four five six years since mark's done it so again it makes you wonder what are the conditions if he was successful four or five times why can't that success continue what changed what altered did he lose the animal that produced I don't know. I give, like I say, again, 100% respect to these people that have gotten as far as they got. But, you know, things just keep telling me they're not keyed in 100% on whatever was successful because it's not an ongoing thing with multiple females. What I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, sure. so, so you start, you know, thinking about that. Now, um, since those uh, were some of the earliest successes, um, you know, Frederick, like I say, he did it uh, multiple times, five successful. He's had um, larger clutches than most of fertile babies, and he's also done it with two different females. So it wasn't like Frederick had one female that, um, you know, he was lucky enough to get that will go the distance because he was able to do it with two different females with two different ma- uh, two different males. So that gave us more hope that, hey, there is a pattern and, and a way to reproduce these animals. Um, but Frederick has a growing new family with young children, and they moved to a larger house. And since that move, Frederick hasn't been able to reproduce his successes. And I strongly believe it's because life is you know taking precedence over the hobby right now with frederick and he'll dial him back in i'm sure and produce but it does make you pause and wonder um if there was a clear-cut easy formula to follow would he be able to do it in the new house or you know was he just being able to be so focused to give them all these little things that added up to success and maybe there wasn't just a clear cut one thing that he did that changed things you know well now he's um, a, he's in denmark isn't he or somewhere he's over there? in sweet he's sweden. in sweden okay 
So, but his his elevation, people go, well, it's his elevation. Well, his elevation, from what I re- remember talking to him, is only four hundred feet above sea level. So that's not coming into play. <laughs> um, you know, people think, well, it's a high altitude. You got to be, but I know people in Colorado that have tried, you know, at high al- altitudes, and it and it doesn't work. Um, uh, we've had a lot of near misses. You know, Nicholas and uh, I call him Nico and. Um, France, he had uh, unfertile clutch. The eggs looked, uh, I'm sorry, actually the eggs were fertile, uh, Nico said, but he failed to have them go the distance or any of them uh, get to the stage of uh, hatching. He lost all the eggs. Um, That was two years ago. This year he didn't get any eggs. So it'll be interesting to see if Nico has a formula or it was a random event again, you know, because we're close, but not there. So we're close enough that we'll have these random successes, but we've obviously not keyed in on this is what you got to do to get for legs from bull and I, you know, it's just, it's just insanely difficult. Were these uh, successful clutches? I'm not even talking about the ones that hatched. I'm including any, any eggs that have been laid, whether they hatched or didn't hatch. Was and are you a- include? Are you going to include unfertilized ova? Because we've had a bunch of those. No, and okay, not not those. I'm just curious. Did these guys go MI, or did they did they pull the eggs and put them in? Um, most have pulled the most of the people because of the rarity and whatnot have taken the eggs and um, incubated them. Um, I don't know of anybody that has tried MI, but I have talked to people saying that if I do get eggs, that is a very strong possibility of what I would attempt to do. Um, but most people get, you know, very cold feet. Hey, you got eggs. They've hatched a lot. Anybody who's working with bowline typically has got a lot of Python hatching experience. So they feel a lot more comfortable being able to control that and they're going to pull the eggs typically, you know, I just, and I don't have any, but I'm just thinking, Bull and I have already established themselves as a very difficult species to breed and inconsistent, even if you get eggs. I would think that mom would know best. <laughs> but that's just me. Right, but, but, but that's correct. But what if we're not giving mom the, the right. what she needs right. to be correct? Right. That's right. the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where the, the problem fight. And, and we've obviously not gotten there yet we we now know how to keep them successfully um they're fairly hardy captives um if you have a little snake python mojo under your belt um bull and i will, will not be a challenging species for you to keep but um to get them past the point of keeping and to the breeding point, that's where the challenge lies for most keepers at this point. And that kind of falls back to the expensive price tag they carry is keeping them more in the hands of people that have the confidence from a lot of experience willing to lay out the money to work with them, you know? Right. I mean, I was just kind of, yeah, and that that's absolutely right. I, I just was thinking, you know, I wonder if maybe the set, like when you were talking about, you know, are we providing mom with the right conditions? I mean, I it seems like these guys, you know, um, while they're totally capable of climbing and stuff like that, they do seem to like to hunker down into like tree hollows and stuff. And I wonder if like, 
maybe the cage setups that these guys need, maybe they need, maybe they need a cage that's four to six feet tall with a, um, a subterranean like level to where they can go underground and the temperatures down there are, you know, 15 to 20 degrees different than what you're seeing at at their basking spot, you know, and maybe, I don't know. I just kind of, throwing it out there yeah well here's the thing so bull and i have been strongly kept let's let's even let's even give it a few years let's say since 1990 right so you got almost 30 years of quite a few bull and i in captivity now those quite a few bull and i in captivity have been kept by the barkers by don hamper by al zulich by Paul Miles, by, you know, I could keep listing Jeff Murray. I could list all the iconic best <laughs> top breeders in the world that have kept Bull and I and have tried year in and year out different, you know, scenarios like the most elaborate zoo set. And speaking of zoos, a lot of zoos keep them that have the finances to give them room enclosures with everything and still. This code has not been cracked. So, like, you can look at um, Hamara scrub pythons, right? Another yeah. insane. I think they've only been bred twice in captivity, but they've also are only now being able to be kept alive in captivity. So there hasn't been those iconic people working with, with Hamara for 30 years with super healthy animals trying to breed them and not being able to do it. Now, they may prove to be that route, but right now, Bull and I and Malukin are the fir- are the two animals that j- jump out into my head of many, 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 many very experienced keepers keeping them and still not being able to crack that code, you know? Yeah, I mean, guys with resumes, basically, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And- and yeah, and I, how much? So when I move back to Florida, I can't keep amethystine. I love scrub pythons, but I can yeah. keep uh, Clastolepis and and the Halmaharas. So right, I, I I'm kind of hoping to. I, I'm very intrigued by the Halmaharas. But, well, it, it, it and it does seem that there's more coming in that people are starting to be able to establish, which is a great foothold for those. And now with some of the successes of babies being born, there's going to be captive born babies out there. So let's hope they're on the road of having more viable animals in the hands of proper collectors that can breed them. And they'll once finally be established in captivity also, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you're, you're, you don't have helmet hair, do you? Uh, I don't, but many very close dear friends of mine are working with okay. them now. So I kind of have my finger on the pulse of, you know, what they're doing and, um, and definitely intrigued to see where that goes. But to, to be honest with you, like right now, I'm just focusing on the black scrubs, the bowl and I, you know, yeah, yeah, that's basically yeah. what they are to me. But, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really work closely with Ari. Like I said, he's family to me and, his wild research helps me tremendously with information that I can apply to captivity. And Ari's got a nice little group of animals now. And, you know, we have Mike Jottery in the group and Casper and a couple other people in this uh, group that uh, we talk all the time. I mean, it's like just a passion of trying to crack that code, you know? Yeah. I mean, what does your group look like? Like how many do you Um, have? 
Well, I, I've actually, I'm going to be 100% honest. I, I've definitely um, killed a couple animals that I had um, recently from trying to establish the uh, proper husbandry protocol. And these guys, like I say, they crash and burn very quickly. So um, keeping them at too cool of temperatures, they'll show no signs of distress. Um, and one of the signs that we did pick up on um, through conversations with other keepers when you are keeping them cool is they'll actually ball up and tuck their head in the center of their coils because they're trying to keep their brain warm. And once they reach that level, now we now know that that's in critical phase and you want to get out of that quickly and get them back to proper temperatures because they'll develop uh, a quick RI and pass very quickly. So I actually lost two of my animals um, during a breeding season a few years ago. Um, so now my group is a little bit smaller um, due to my error, without a doubt. You know, I'm going to own on so, that and it well, is what it is. You know, we all make mistakes. We just always hope it's not. We don't want to make mistakes at all. But when it's with animals that are rare or really, really expensive, it's kind of a little bit more of a kick in the balls. Yeah. To me, it's, it's losing two viable adults that, you know, could have potentially created some more captive. Cause this to me is a labor of love. Like sure. if I, if, if I'm ever graced with producing clutches, my animals aren't good. If I sold a pair, if I was lucky enough to raise 10 animals, possibly sell a pair to fund the project, but everything else I raise is going into the many keepers that I know are capable of doing something with the animals. These animals are going to those people to try to build a nice captive base of uh, captive born animals for future generations to enjoy. I mean, that's my ultimate goal with this species, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, they're never going to be like popular, like a, like a, ball python or something like that i mean they are very much a niche species absolutely um, and one that i've been fascinated with for a long time and it's just uh they're a little steep for me right now and that combined with the fact that i don't have the space to give because i would want to give them you know i want to give them a pretty big cage right to, to to keep them you know where they have like basically my thoughts are giving them subclimates within that cage so that they can, you know, move around and thermoregulate as much as they need to and make it a, you know, a daily routine for them like they would have in the wild. Absolutely. But, um, so yeah, so, so, so people, you know, that I discuss Bull and I with probably have heard this a million times for me, but one of the issues that I have with doing that is, um, that, you can provide things to animals that are their perk in life. And when we supply them to them in captivity, they indulge and take advantage of it almost like a alcoholic would take advantage of a drink. You know what I mean? So yeah. as an example, Bull and I are not graced with a lot of basking in the wild. They're, it's just the nature of their habitat that there's not a lot of basking to them. So in captivity, everybody will give them a basking during the day and they may give them only eight hours a day and think, Hey, it's only eight hours of basking a day and I'll now cool them down at night and whatnot, like in their natural range. Well, eight hours of basking to an animal that's been designed to accept, um, 
basking and take everything out of it within 30 minutes that they need for two days to sustain themselves. Now you're giving them eight hours of that. They're going to take advantage of it while it's there, but it's not the correct thing for them to be doing. You know what I mean? So the animal, like, okay, thermal burns. How many um, savanna monitors or iguanas that are masters at basking do you see in captivity that have thermal burns? You know what I mean? Like too much mm-hmm. of a good thing in captivity for these animals, they take advantage of when it's available and they keep taking advantage and keep taking advantage because it's we keep making it available to, to them, but we're really overindulging them in that perk of life for a Bolton's python, you know? So well, so, I, so what's I worry the, about providing so much basking for them. So Keith, Or a range for them to choose, I should say. Well, so Keith, what's the balance then? Because a minute ago you were talking about how you feel like you kind of made a couple husbandry errors and that caused uh, two of your animals to, to unfortunately pass on you. Um, right. You were talking about keeping them too cool, but now you're talking also about, uh, so like, what is, what do you feel like is the right balance for keeping them? Like as far as he, he I, I guess, let me, let me be more clear. Like what is, what do you think is the right basking uh, time and what okay so, so so let me let me first uh talk about cooling okay so ari has been over there um and i've read in other literature where there um can be even frost i've heard of at their altitude but definitely 45 40 degree temperatures are acceptable to them right so yeah a room that I was able to create 40 or 45 degree temperatures for them. But you got to realize that in that range, they have a micro habitat in the ground that is a constant 78 degrees from Larry's research with whatnot. So it's not the fact of getting the animal to 45, 50 degrees it may be the fact of forcing that animal to remain in a 78-degree hide while the outside ambient is 45 degrees for, or even 60 degrees for three days in a row. You know what I mean? Yeah. So not providing, but typical python husbandry is we want to cool our animals, right? You Let's say Burmese pythons, you wanted to bring them down say to 75, 78 degree at night and you force them to accept that 75 to 80 degrees. Well, if you have that mentality with going after bowl and I, because their range gets to 45 degrees, that's when you wind up killing your bowl and I, because you provided them that 45 degrees that they may get in the wild, but you did not give them the 78 degree <laughs> basking hide spot within the cage for them to retreat to and be forced to stay into, you know? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, so with the basking, the reason I say basking, they can overindulge in because if you have ambient 80 degrees, which we know is a little high, but in their normal range, if they were to stay in their burrows at 78 degrees, if you gave them ambient of 80 degrees and you provide them a basking light and a basking spot of 86 degrees, 24 hours a day, my experience is that bull and I is going to be under that basking spot 
for 18 hours out of those 24 hours a day, probably taking advantage because it's been programmed by mother nature when it's available, take advantage of take it. Advantage doesn't of matter it. if it's five minutes long. doesn't matter if it's five hours long, they're going to take advantage of it because that's what mother nature is programmed to do. That's my interpretation. I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's my interpretation of what I've seen with the species. Right. So relying on them, knowing what's best for them in captivity, in captive conditions with what we're providing them, I don't think work with Bull and I and why they are such a difficult species to reproduce or even for some to keep alive, you know? So what do you think is an ideal um, cage size for a snake that big? Um. I I have uh, my smallest cages are six foot long, but they're two foot t- uh, two tiers high, and they're just shy of three feet wide. So if you multiply three by six, you got eighteen on the ground floor and eighteen on the second floor. So they have thirty two square feet of floor space for an adult bull and I. Yeah, um, but but you know, you, which I think is reasonable. But you're you're probably your bottom tier is a completely different temperature than your 100 percent 100 percent okay so that's kind well you're i guess that's kind of like what i was talking about earlier you're you're and correct me if i'm wrong but you're offering them you're giving them options right to in a narrow range now though i gave them options in a broader range before in my okay you know what I'm saying? So yeah. now my narrow range is um, I provide a UVB light uh, in the form of fluorescent. So it's and it's the way it's situated, it doesn't throw any heat, but it throws the UVB. Um, and I keep them at ambient temperatures. I don't provide them with any basking spots whatsoever. And once I started started changing, you know, especially on decreasing heat. Um, I've noticed things with the animals such as, um, um, their feces being more Python like and not what people who've kept them for a little bit and say, Oh, they're such my messy pythons. They're shitting and smearing it all over the cage and it's very runny, stinky stools. I don't get that anymore. Um, so it's telling me I'm dialing them in overall on husbandry better because, I'm getting these more solid, more typical Python-like stools and more like what Ari has seen in the wild when he's visiting these different burrows that the snakes are in, you know? So what is, what are the, what are the extremes like lowest and warmest that attempts that your animals experience in your collection and for how long on each one? Um, okay. So in the past I have ranged from 40 degrees to 86 degrees and the animals can withstand those temperatures for short durations. When I'm saying short durations, I'm, I'm going to now say, uh, one night of 45 degrees for a bull and I with no other heat, the animal can survive that and be healthy and have no problem. I do not think they need that anymore but they can certainly take 40 to 45 degrees for a night and have no health issues whatsoever from my experience. But I've tightened my range up now. Again, I'm keeping them ambient. So my range right now is anywhere from uh, 78 
during the day to 82 during the day. And I like to get anywhere from 68 to 72 at night for normal husbandry. So are you, are you offering supplemental heat? Like, are you like you're feeding? So how do you, how often do you feed and what do you feed? Um, I'm feeding, uh, well, so feeding is going to be a cycle thing for me now. I'm trying to tune in what I'm going to do. And I'm talking about adults now, neonates and everything else are a totally separate thing, um, for how you handle adults. But, uh, so I'm talking strictly for adults, but my typical husbandry routine is, uh, what I get from my supplier as a, uh, it's a large rat and I'll do that every two to three weeks. And I really play it by year. I really just judge the look of the animal, the tone of the animal. If it looks uh, like it's getting a little thin, I might go to every two weeks. If it looks like it's getting a little bulky then I cut back to every three weeks and I just kind of play it by year. I don't have a set. I do it all by feel really with, uh, with the feeding of them. But I, um, you know, maybe for ovulation or something, I'll go to once a week, but a smaller meal for the females to try to stimulate and feed the follicles and get them to ovulate. But typical routine is every two to three weeks on a, on a, on a large rat for an adult bull and I. Okay. And they, they process that very well at even 78 to 80 degrees. They process that, that rat just fine, actually better than if it's kept warmer. If they're kept warmer, you can be prone to regurgitation, speeding up their metabolism to get that uh, smelly stool. And when they're so speeded up like that, I believe that, um, you know, they're not getting out of the uh, prey item what they should be getting out of that prey item. Do you think that they eat uh, like uh, birds and stuff in the wild? Um, well, okay, so a little bit about Ari's research. So Ari is going to do another trip, and he was able to raise money for transponders to implant in the animals. And they will, I believe he's uh, anywhere from 10 months to a year worth of tracking he can do to the animals once these transponders are in. Ideally, he'll find a male and a female, and we're hoping that following that may give us a clue on what they're really feeding on when they're hunting and all that information in the wild. Um, the best we can guess at right now is, is ground couscous and some of the local rat species over there are their primary prey. Um, they're taking over the, cou- the ground couscous um, burrows and using them as nest sites and retreats from the cool temperatures so, um, you know, one of the first items you think of with bull and iron feeding in the wild is the couscous uh, for adults, um, which is a possum-like, you know, a few pound, uh, I think an adult can be up to five pounds um, mammal that uh, they'll be preying on in the wild, basically. Gotcha. Yeah, I had heard of the couscous, but I, I would, was just kind of wondering if maybe there's large birds that they have taken down there i mean don't i'm i would imagine they have some type of ground like grouse or ground fowl or something like that where yeah yeah um ari hasn't been able to um collect any uh you know animals where he's able to see that there was a meal in there and get him to regurge to to find out what it was and um i don't think it's um 
in feasible form to to take fecal and try to sure. ascertain what they've been feeding on or anything. So it's really a lot of guesswork at this point on what they're feeding on, um, just through uh, what he's seeing in the wild. It, it prey. Uh, the problem is, is when Ari's over there, he's not seeing a lot of it. Um, yeah. He's not seeing a lot of birds in the area or hearing them take off and talking to the locals. He information about some. Um, we don't know how much of that they're really feeding on in the wild. Gotcha. So, um, are all of your animals adult size? Or are they kind of all different ages? All or? my animals, all my animals are adults. The the main pair that I'm focusing on right now. Um, is a pair that I raised um, from 2013. When I got them, I got them from Cam, from Bushmaster. Um, they were just out of their red phase and just into the black. Um, so I've raised them at a very early age. They're very used to my conditions. Um, so those are the pair. That's the pair that I have the most faith in, and you know, seem to be able to get to respond to what I'm doing here the best. So those are my most hopeful pair. Gotcha. And when, when do you plan on putting those together? Um, Well, I've put them together for the last two years. I get copulation. I get uh, follicles building. Um, You get everything heading in the right way. You'll even get a female based on Frederick's observations to shed at the right time, thinking you're going to get eggs and nothing happens. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, that sounds a little bit like some of my experience with uh, Candoya, uh, Bibberni australis, the Solomon Island tree yeah. rose. But oh yeah, I, I know you know I speak to Jeff Murray quite a bit, and I speak to Rob Stone quite a bit, and that's definitely their bull and I. You know, <laughs> those are species that they're concentrating on and really trying to work on, and it's yeah. as frustrating for them as it is for me with the bull and I, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I had a group of thirteen at one point, but I couldn't do anything with them so i would get like the follicular development and refusing food and changing colors and uh then nothing and i just go back on eating or they would just drop off the perch and die yeah yeah so the up and up and die syndrome yeah yeah (laughs) so um with your uh with your bolens pythons um do you uh, let's see what I'm kind of lost my train of thought. Um, are you thinking that like you'll be adding any more or are you thinking you're just going to kind of stick with what um, you have? If, if yeah, no, I mean, I have some, some leads out there with some contacts that do get the animals in and I'm hoping that a, another group or two will still come into the country before that's closed where I could, I would ideally love to pick up another pair or trio um, and raise uh, to have to work with. Um, And that would be fantastic. I'm all about having the more there are, the more, the bigger the sampling, the more you're going to learn and, you know, hopefully get to your objective a lot quicker. Um, Trying to do it with a smaller group of four animals is a lot tougher than, if you have 15 animals, you get a better feel for what's going on. But luckily, you know, again, I'm friends with, you know, Evan Wexler, who has 
he lives very close to me and he has 15 or so animals. You know, Ari has a nice little group. Frederick has a nice little group. Um, so I have a lot of very close friends that we bounce ideas off of almost daily of what we're seeing, what's going on. And uh, all that information is basically, you know, as if I had those animals in my collection. So it's, it's you know, we definitely have to stick together, work together and try to get to the end uh, finish line um, by working together through this, you know, without a doubt. Sure. And what is the temperament like on, on them? Are they pretty docile or? Um, yeah, so, um, I actually have a male here that was, is just sent to me on breeder loan. He's still in quarantine. I, I got him from, you know, Jeff Murray. He sent him up, um, to see if we can make something happen with an extra, uh, mature male in the group. So he sent him up here and, uh, this animal has a different disposition than 99% of the other animals I have and that I've worked with. Most bull and I in general, once they get past their nippy baby stage, are looking for food. You open the door and they're like, okay, who are you and what do you have for me to eat? So they'll, they're very King Cobra-like in that their approach to you is with a raised head. And, um, you know, at a large adult can be 15 inches off the ground as they're coming towards the door to see what you're going to bring for them. Uh, so, you know, they can be intimidating, but if you grab them with a snake hook and just start pulling them out and shut that feeding response off, they are very tractable, very easygoing, very confident snakes. They're, uh, all the animals I've worked with, they're not shy or fear biters like, you know, some blood pythons and short tails could be. They're very confident um, in themselves and what they're capable of doing. And, you know, I handle them with respect because they are a larger constrictor, but I have no worries at all once one is in my hands of any aggression towards me whatsoever. Man, that they definitely have, you know, it's definitely something that I would like to experience. I just would like to hold one because they because they just are so impressive. Well, the, the texture of the skin, which I always, you know, every aspect of these animals, I try figuring out, like, why do they have these white slashes on their face? What is the possible evolutionary um, formula for these white slashes on their face or their iridescent skin, you know? Now, a couple things about their skin. So when you do hold a bull and eye, their, their skin almost, how do I want to say it, like, if you held an Angolan python that's your very like uh, beaded scales or whatever, you can run your uh, hand along that and it just glides smoothly and effortlessly along the, the snake. But with a bull and eye, um, if you try to slide your hand, it's almost like a uh, very clean piece of glass where your fingers want to kind of stick as you're dragging them along. You know, I, they're not a sticky surface, but you kind of understand what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Like, uh, you, you know, they, uh, they, uh, you can't glide along a bowl and ivy. It's almost like your fingers are getting stopped along the way by a super clean uh, skin. And if you do miss, bowl and I hate being misted, which is very unusual for a snake that comes from such a humid, uh, you know, mist cloud um, type environment. But if you do miss the bowl and I, what happens is each scale will get an individual droplet of water 
at the center of the scale. Like the, the water it beads up on them like it would on a, a highly waxed car, car finish, you know, and it will just be a little dot of water on each center of each scale. It's pretty interesting to see. Wow. Um, so you wonder what that's all about, it, you know? So when you hold one, it's like holding something different than you've ever held before. You could close your eyes. I could put this in your hand and you're going to be like, wow, that feels very different than any Python I've ever held before. Yeah. Gosh, that sounds really intriguing. Um, you know, the waxed car thing, it totally puts it into perspective. Right. Yeah, no, it, it is very interesting. And, and, and a healthy, happy bolanai is a bolanai that has incredible iridescence and not only when it sheds. If you are putting your animal through any kind of stress, it may not show it and it'll keep eating. It'll be acting normally and all. But one of the first signs of your bolanai is not in a happy place is they lose that iridescence. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's definitely, a, if you go to somebody's collection, you look at their bowl line, unless they're within a week of shedding or getting blue eyes, they're, they're, they're always of a high iridescence when they're super ha- healthy and happy. I didn't know that. Huh. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, we get. And the other interest, the other interesting thing about them that I've never seen with another Python is when you do cool them, overcool them too much or anything, it's hard to describe, but their scales Okay, like if you've kept any birds at all, if you've kept parrot keats or cockatiels or anything like that and you've had them in a cage and they're feeling under the weather, you know how they ruffle out their feathers and they kind of get puffy. A bull and I almost does the same thing. When it's not feeling up to par um, and it's starting to go to the next level of not just being iridescent, it'll almost give the appearance of the scales being fluffed out and... um, um, not tight and toned to the body. Huh. Wow. I, I could keep talking with you for a while about these guys, but <laughs> I know we've got some other topics that I wanted to get to. So I think maybe yeah. we should just stop there with the bowl and I let people kind of let that marinate. And cause we're, it's yeah. And, and, and let me just throw out there. If you want to learn more about bowl and I, you can join Ari's group on uh, Facebook or you can uh, purchase his latest book. He has great insight into the wild aspects of bull and I, the land that they come from, the people that surround them. And then I have a chapter in there on the captive husbandry. And we have some insight from Frederick. So if you want to learn more about bull and I, pick up our, his new book is uh, uh, Serpents in the Clouds. And, um, you know, you can always message any of us if you have information. If you want to get into Bull and I learn more about them, just feel free. Or we can do three more episodes on Bull and I. <laughs> well, I, I, second, I second the book because I bought it at Tenley, and it, it's an awesome book. I took it, I've taken it with me on two vacations and read parts of it each time. Um, yeah, it really takes you into the mindset of where they come from, their environment, from the people, like I say. Yeah. And, and I think that's very important to understand all of that to get a good read on the snake and, and how to take care of it better in captivity. All that stuff's very important. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Um, I, I don't know how much experience you have with Moluccans. Uh, I know that you have some, and I don't know how much experience you have with Russian burger. I, I know that you did reproduce Russian burger. I, 
Um, is there one yes. or the other you'd like to talk about next? <clears throat> um, well, we could just touch on Malukin. So um, I can tell you that uh, I kept him for, uh, I believe it was close to three years. And I decided um, to give my animals to Chad Gray, who is another person I consider family. Um, Chad's welcome in my home at any time for any reason. No questions asked. Come stay with us, dude. I, I love you, man. He's a great guy. So Chad has had success breeding Malukin. Um, Chad totally loves and adores the species. I had some great animals. So I elected to pass my animals along to Chad in the hopes that he'll do something with them and I'll get a pair down the road to play with. So I have all the confidence in the world Chad will do with them, but I can tell you uh, my experience with them. Um, they are extremely in my experience, Bull and I like in the fact of their uh, demeanor in a cage is very Bull and I like, I can't say I trusted my adults as much as I do my Bull and I, but they had a little bit more cage aggression than a bull and I, but still an animal that you hook them, get them out in your hand and treat them with respect and, you know, just watch them. They never struck once I got them out of the cage or gave me any attitude, but I always did treat them with a little bit more respect than the bull and I, um, they, I did treat them as far as the bull and I, even with temps, I did cool those animals also, um, to 45, 50 degrees, and they took that with no issues whatsoever, May, just as well as the bull and I. Oh, wow. Um, I, I don't know much about their um, wild, um, you know, husbandry because I don't have a person like Ari dealing with bull and I that I, with Malukin, so I don't know that much about them. But um, I decided to keep them in this my group animals in the same room that is my bull and I room. So pretty much they took all the conditions I was throwing at the bull and I. The Malukins also took um, with no ill effects. They actually did very well with all those conditions. I had a lot of copulations in the spring. My female got extremely dark and. Um, she definitely was building follicles, which led me to believe I was heading in the right direction. But again, just like the bull and I, I just could not get those pearly whites out of them. Awesome. So, you know, right around then, um, is when I decided, you know, see if Chad was interested in adding to his collection and working with him. And he was, so I was very thankful and happy to get him down to Chad. So, um, if you do want to talk, Malukins in detail, you know, Chad would be a great person, or if you can get Casper to come on, Casper is uh, uh, very well versed in Malukins also and has quite a large collection now of them, I believe. Yeah, I was going to ask how many. I know Anthony Caponetto produced a clutch of four, I think, like 10 years yeah. ago or something like that. Do you remember how many Chad produced? Or um, I, 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 I seem to remember that Chad got. 11 eggs i believe but i don't know what uh his hatch ratio was at that time i don't recall what he did um hatching and, him, but chad would definitely be a great person to discuss and didn't rough current <clears throat> produce 
I think so. Yeah. He yeah. produced some too. Yeah. It's another animal. There's only a handful of people in the country that can say that they've done it, you know, definitely a, uh, another very hard to breed species. And they get pretty big, don't they? Um, you know, my adults, like I say, they were totally, um, mature in the fact that they were in reproductive cycles. Like I say, the male was breeding, the female was getting hormonally dark and, and building follicles and all. And I'm going to say, um, for comparison, my largest animal was six and a half feet and probably, yeah, they weren't tremendously huge animals. Um, I have seen some very large animals, but they're the exception and not the norm. Typically, most of the adults that I've seen are in the seven-foot range, seven to eight-foot range tops. Gotcha. Yeah, they. I remember my buddy. I, I've liked them for so many years. My buddy's like, yeah, I took a bite to the face from one, and I'll, I'll never own another one. And I yeah. was like, you know, they're definitely one that you have to kind of keep. But that's. I think that's like it is with any scrub python, really. I mean, yeah, you know, Dave Barker gave me the best description of scrub pythons. He's like, when you open the door, they're, they're so keyed in with their uh, heat receptors that they're doing something that they don't even realize they're doing. He's like, they launched their head like a scud missile. It was his exact words. Um, like, they'll feel the heat of your body and your face and your breath from extremely far away and be able to uh, strike at you uh, like the instant that warmth touches their heat receptors. And uh, it's not even a conscious action on their part. You know what I mean? So I always open the door with respect after, you know, this is 20 years ago talking to the Barkers about them. And, and, um, and uh, so I always treat him with respect. I open the door with, I would unlock the door. I would open it, let it down with a snake hook. So I was out of range and out of any stimulus uh, to their heat receptors. And I would let my movement, you know, let them key in on my movement. I'd work closer to the cage. I would hook them, pull them out. And then they were no issue, but it, there's no doubt in my mind that if I opened that door quickly and immediately, I would have taken hits to the face because they are incredibly accurate at going for your eye region of your face. You know, that's the, where they always strike for when they do launch an attack. That's, that's gotta be instinctual because that's the, that's, you know, that's the part that can do damage to them, you know, right. because they're vulnerable whenever they're eating. So right. if they can get that locked down, then they can just squeeze the rest of you and you're, you're, you know, a prey item has no chance but exactly if they get the wrong end then that that mouth is going to be could bite and you know do do some damage to them right yeah and they're extremely accurate you know um and and you know with uh with emeralds and everything i'm sure you've moved an emerald on a perch 10 feet away from a, a radiant heater in your snake room or whatever and the animal's striking and you're like what the hell is the thing striking at and from 10 feet away, they're picking up the heat from that radiant heat uh, and, you know, launching their attack at that heater that's 10 feet away just because of the extreme heat that they're picking up. It's like an involuntary reaction, you know. It's, it's, it's always amazing to me, Mother Nature. We take uh, the little things that these animals have come up with uh, for granted, I think, all too many times. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I had, I had, uh, I didn't have them for a long time, but I had, uh, 
two pairs of um, amethystina. So they were very, very alert. Um, right. And they knew when I was in the room, they knew like any movement. Um, I had one that would, I mean, they weren't huge, but I had one that would bite me. And I purposely would not put it down when it bit me. And the biting got more and more sporadic. Right. And it, it wasn't as frequent as before because I was trying to get, you know, and, and to me, that was basically a message in their brain. They're saying, okay, this, this doesn't elicit this reaction anymore. So, right. I mean, I still got bit, but it wasn't quite as often. Right. You, you know, your, your body language with a species, once you get to know it, it's amazing. Like, so, uh, you know, an adult blood python can be, you know, even up to 30, 40 pounds, right? But let's say the average adult is 18 to 20 pounds. It's a large, short, intimidating, powerful animal. But once you understand the animals inside and out and have worked with them long enough, it's amazing that just your confidence at interacting with that animal puts that animal to ease and you work with it so much easier than and you'll think that animal is tame and easy because of the confidence and how you work with it. But if you have a stranger come into that room and go to work with that same animal, it's, it's like all hell broke loose. And you're like, what the heck is going on? You know, it's just the body language of the keeper and understanding that particular animal and how you interact with it. And you having confidence give the animal confidence. It's just amazing. I see it over and over and over again. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen that with the animals of my own collection that have been somewhat cage, cage defensive and they've calmed down. Not, and this doesn't just have to do with like growing, but just uh, my interaction and me getting absolutely. more confident with them. Yeah, absolutely. And cool. I think, I think amethystians and, and all the scrub complex, you know, are a perfect example of that. Um, David means, you know, he, he's like the, 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 uh, the scrub whisperer, whisperer. That's what you I was know, say, the scrub yeah, whisperer. yeah, absolutely. I mean, he could interact with animals so easily that you know, if you're not used to working with them, would be intimidating to even very experienced keepers. You know, it's it's just that confidence of working with so many of them, being able to read them, that puts the snake itself at ease. Right. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, I was. I, I've never worked around, I've never even been around um, Moluccans or Malukans, however you pronounce it, uh, in person. But um, I have seen so many pictures of them that I just, gosh. Their beauty, their beauty in person is indescribable. They're, they're just, I, I, call, I call them golden bull and I, you know, cause, cause I, I, I put the bull and I label on them just to try to elevate even because people hold bull and I in such high regard. So in my mind, you know, I just added that to it, but they're just such a golden serpent for, you know, the nice, um, nice golden animals are just spectacular. Like you look at them in awe and get lost in the beauty of that snake, each scale, each separation of the scale, the color on that animal. And when you put it all together, they're just indescribable uh, to look at. And this is something, you know, mother nature created. It's not nothing from 30 years of line breeding or morph breeding or anything else to get this. This is just something that nature created. And it's just mind blowing when you, 
actually see one in person and are able to really check it out nice and close, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I know Martin, uh, Rosemont's a good friend of mine and he picked up a pair of young ones from Joe Swatowski and he, his pair that he has are just phenomenal. Like they are so pretty. I mean, the color on them, he's posting pictures all the time. Like, dude, you got to quit doing this. He'll just text me (laughs) pictures of them. And I'm like, you're killing me. You're killing me. Yeah. And there's another animal. Look at the value of those animals nowadays. I mean, they have gone through the roof. You know, if you can even find them anymore, the price is quadrupled in the last two years on those, you know. I think Um, they're they're like $1,300 a piece. Yeah, something like that now, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And, and used to be able to get them for like, you know, what's funny is, um, so, uh, gosh, when was it about four or five years ago? Um, I bought a bunch of stuff from cam and, uh, cam had on his list, he had tandem bar scrub pythons. So I reached out to cam and I said, cam, you know, I asked about him. He goes, well, I got a, I, it's basically a, a clutch of six. They're right out of the egg. They're not really established. I was buying some chondros off of them. And um, I said, all right, throw them in. I'll, I'll take the whole clutch. He's like, you want all of them? I said, yeah, I'll take all of them. Um, I said, do you have any uh, uh, Malukans? And he goes, yeah, I have some. They're imports. I think it's, I think it was a reverse trio. He's like, I'll give them to you for $175 a piece. Jeez. <laughs> this was like four or five years ago. And I'm like, yeah. Eh. I'll, I think I'll wait. I'll, I've got all these baby uh, tanabars coming in, which are basically like Satan in the form of a snake. Uh, <laughs> um, and I eventually got rid of them because I just despised working with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was like, I was like, now I look back and I'm like, dude, why didn't you buy the Malukans, man? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, I would have bought so- everyone they had. So this really nice adult pair that I got, I, I and you may know the the guy. I think he's from Texas or Arizona, um, and he he got into retics, but he had these Malukans, and his name was Jim, and it started with K. His last name, I can't think of his last name now, but he was known for having nice Malukans and different scrubs and everything. And uh, he wanted to get into retics, so he posted this pair up, and he goes, "I'm accepting offers, best offer between now and." whenever uh, it was like two days later we'll get the animals well i saw how beautiful they were and at the time like you said they were like four or five hundred dollar animals but i said to you know i wanted them i didn't want anybody to outbid me so i just threw an offer of two grand for the pair meanwhile they're probably worth eight hundred or a thousand dollars at the time but i said i'll give you two grand for the pair because they were what i wanted i just wanted them i didn't want to deal with bidding against anybody or anything like that and he put out there what the highest bid was and nobody else even wanted to touch that at the time. Now, an adult female Malukan, you know, you could probably get two, $2,200, $2,500 for an adult female nowadays, you know? Yeah. It's crazy what the price has gone. Yeah. That's, I was, you know, and I, I would bet that you might even be able to get more than that. I would, I yep. know some guys might even sell them for upwards of three grand for, right. but I mean, you're not going to find an adult female. Nobody's going to sell that. I, I couldn't imagine no. anyone selling one. No, no. 
And you know what I like about that? Okay. Okay. The value stinks and, you know, people should be able to get what they want and, you know, not go into debt for it and all that. But it's kind of good to see these normal phase natural representations gaining in value and popularity nowadays. You know, it's kind of very yeah. refreshing to me that the, that the hobby and definitely the hardcore people are, are, are kind of going back to that. I, I think that's great. Like the Roshan Burger Eye. Right now, yeah, I think they're extremely beautiful in person. Like I, when I got my my pair from Eli Carlton, I was blown away and so pleasantly. I just wanted them because they were different than anything I worked with when I bought them from Eli. And um, actually, I have to say that the first pair I got, uh, Ian uh, Bissell and I are are um, co owners of that pair. We went in on them together to get them from Eli. And I was like, you know, it's a cool new species um, that I haven't worked with. It's something that, um, you know, it'd be nice to have in the collection to have more of the different corrales. So that's why I got them. And when I opened them up, put them in a in the caging, I was like so blown away at their just natural beauty. Um, you know, like people take it for granted. I think pictures don't do a lot of these animals justice. And when you see them in person, it's just it's, they're just mind blowing. They're beautiful animals. What locality are your Rochenberg Eye? Oh, uh, gosh. I, I think everything right now that's in the country pretty much is Costa Rican, um, yeah. which tend to be a golden greenish color. But the, the, the tail on them gets to be, when they're adult, this gunmetal blue-black color. And I mean, it literally has like a depth to it and iridescence to that tail that it just looks like a different animal's tail was sewn onto this golden green pattern snake. And that's, it's kind of like a yellow tail Kribo in a way, right? Um, you know, you know, where it just has that totally different look and um, they're stunning animals. In, and I can't believe they're not more popular than they are. The people that do follow them are very passionate about them. The people yeah. that are into them are really into them. And, there's nobody that seems to be middle of the road. It's either like you totally are passionate and in love with them or you're like, eh, it's just a green snake. You know? Yeah. I, I, I am pretty heavy onto the, in the camp of wanting to get into them. Um, I like the Trinidad and Tobago when the oh, they're beautiful if you can find them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you can find them. But uh, I, I know, uh, my buddy Jay Wagner down in Florida has a baby that uh, Jeff Murray produced. Yeah, and it's like a it's like a pastel color. It's just absolutely phenomenal. And I think that's a Venezuelan variety, if I'm not mistaken. I can't I can't remember what Jeff told me. Yeah, but, Jeff Jeff would be my first go to guy to 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 get any of the locality. Obviously, you know if you if you could pry anything out of his hands that he's producing that way, he's. He's got the most insane stuff with the, you know, best information on it and locality specific. You know, he'd be my go-to guy to, to get animals along those lines without a doubt. Yeah, but good luck. I mean, I yeah, I tried, I, <laughs> I tried to. I he told me what he'd sell green Sanzinia for. I tried to buy two pairs off of him, and he wouldn't sell me any of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I I have a pair I'm working with here. 
um, that uh, I am so thankful to get in my hands again because, you know, I've had them many years ago and actually reproduced the greens and the mandarins. So I was tickled to death to finally get some of those back in my, but anyway, it was totally luck how I got them. You know, they're impossible to find today. Oh, I know. And the people that do have them don't really want to let any of them go. No. But um, go- going back to the Rushis, so like, are they? I was talking to Nick Mutton about it. He has a couple, I think. And Nick was telling me they're kind of like a scrub python in demeanor. Is that what you've seen, or are they kind of like an Amazon? See, actually, like- no, so so my annulated are all puppy dog tame. My annulated, like I would let my grandson, who's four years old, go rip the lid off, kick the cage five times, reach in and pull out an annulated, and not even think twice about it. You know, they're they're just such mushes the annulated and then you know how amazons can be you know they they're hit or miss but generally they they are ready to to scrap with you i find that my rosies are kind of middle of the road they have days where they're as calm and cool and collect as an annulated and then other days they can be like uh the worst emerald tree boa you've ever worked with but in general i find them easier to to manage than um your typical emeralds to be honest with you i find them not so bad um they're content to um i i like to just perch handle a lot of my arboreals um just take them out on the perch i have this little bracket set up that i can put them on as i'm cleaning their cage and then pick them back up and put them in well amazons will tend to wander on that perch or get ready to strike or zone in on you when you're coming to pick the perch back but these guys will just kind of lay, you know, very content and staying in their coils and not getting ready to defend themselves and not getting ready to flee. They kind of just hang out. Um, it's when you start messing with them a little bit. And if you interact with them too roughly that they can get their guard up and then, you know, want to give you a shot or two. But mine my- really aren't that back. And, 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 you know, maybe that has a lot. To my the, the adults that I have are from Eli. So maybe that has to do with. Eli spending a lot of time with them. I don't know, but mine really aren't that bad. They're not, I don't worry, you know, or ever think twice about working with them. They're much bigger, aren't they? They're big animals. Yeah. They're, they're uh, bigger than the Amazons for sure. Heavier body. Um, You know, they can pretty much mine takes, you know, I, they're, they're bigger than weanling rats. They're small rats. Mine will take small rats with gusto and, not even put a dent in them, you know, like you can feed them pretty good and not have any worries about regurge or issues along those lines. They can handle a good meal. Wow. Yeah. I, I, gosh, this, this is not good. Cause I want to get some pretty bad. I was yeah. thinking of, I, and they're not, they're not terribly expensive right now. Either. No, you, I think you can, you could probably even find young ones for, I don't know, six to 800 a pair, I would say. Yeah. That was kind of what I was thinking. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen them. I think I was thinking somewhere around the 700, 750 a pair. Yeah. Um, and- I think as they get in more people's hands and more collectors start really seeing what they're all about, the value of them is going to start up. Um, yeah. Because they, they are, they may look like in a picture to be as a kind of a drab snake, but in person, they're so far from it. And uh, they have these like jet black, great white shark eyes like you know and, yep. they, and they're yes. kind of bulbous on the head the eyes and they really stand out 
um, on the animal are very, very, make them very unique looking. I really love the eyes on these animals. So what was your, like you bred them. I mean, how did that go? Like, was it? Uh, I gotta be honest with you. I just, I treated them just like my Amazons. And I think you and I may have touched on it in some texts back and forth about, you know, feeding them to ovulation, you know, with Amazons and them and even my emeralds, I've, I've, it works for me is, you know, I, I feed them very sporadically during normal husbandry, but after I get a couple of really good breedings in and the female, you know, just give me those cues that she's at that point in the season, I start feeding them very heavy and I'll give them, you know, two small rats weekly, the Rochenberger I and, um, it's like they they gain weight from the rats that it just kind of morphs into an ovulation for me you know i don't know how to put it in any other terms but i feed the follicles to the point of ovulation and that's really all i did i mean i did some basic cooling um along the way but uh at night but the days were still back up to 83 84 degree ambient Again, I don't give any of my arboreals, the emeralds, anybody. I don't give them any supplemental heat. Everybody is kept uh, totally ambient. And, um, you know, and they and they acted pretty much along the lines of the Amazons. Um, I did everything, my cycle, my feeding, everything along those lines, except a little bit of a larger prey item than I would give an Amazon because they're just a more they're robust animal. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're very very straightforward animals you know they're they're not a little like you know annulated can be a little temperamental you want to keep them a little cooler you don't want to you know really hit them with big large meals and whatnot um but they're these guys i treat just like my amazons and they respond fantastically to it so now the litter that i had you know the babies were a little tough and again like i said i'm you know partners with ian on this one pair that i got so um, the babies, uh, came out and they were, I had a bunch of Amazons and some other different animals at the time that I'm struggling, you know, getting going and working on and my time's limited. And also I'm like, Ian, you want to give these guys a go? So he's like, sure. So, you know, Ian's got great experience getting baby chondros going and, you know, that, you know, takes more patience than just about anything to get little chondros going right. a lot of times. So I was like, Ian's a perfect candidate to, to give his hand at getting these little guys going. So he was having a tough time with the, the pinkies, you know. He was trying to get them going on pinkies and whatnot. Well, Ian, being in Florida, has access to all kinds of animals in his gardens, you know. So they had actually collected, I find this super interesting, they actually had collected eggs in the garden when they were going to plant stuff. They dug up this clutch of eggs, and Ian always calls them mystery clutches. And he got um, these eggs. So him and his son said, hey, let's hatch them and see what they turn out to be. Well, they, sure enough, they turn out to be brown basilisk. So, you know, that's a natural forage for uh, a Rochenberger eye, right? So right. he hatched out these baby brown basilisks. And they were keeping them for a while, as past, uh, you know, just to observe them. But they're an invasive species down there. So Ian was keeping them. And then I sent them the the baby Rosenberger eye. And after his frustrations trying to get him going with the pinkies, he goes, Keith, what do you think about giving him that? And I'm like, well, you know what? You, you hatch the eggs. It's not like they've been exposed to pesticides or this or that or anything else. 
So yeah, why not give it a try? So he did and they ate and he kind of just worked with that and then slowly sent transferred and got him on pinkies and, uh, you know, got him going uh, that way. So I don't know if we just, cause I did have, um, a lot of babies that, uh, were stillborn. So the strange thing was, okay, so we got back from Tinley and I went downstairs cause everything always has babies while you're away. Right. So I go downstairs. Yeah. I have people checking it, but you know, nothing was there. I went downstairs. I checked myself. There was nothing in any of the cages. I come upstairs. I eat dinner. I go down and there's the whole litter of Rosenberger eye in the half hour it took me to eat on the floor huh. of the cage. And they're in a, you know, the soupy gooey mess. Um, so I instantly take the mom out and, you know, pull babies out and start going through them. And um, most of the litter was actually stillborn. And I think I was had three or four that were viable, good babies to send down to Ian. Um, but I, maybe he had a tough time getting them going because maybe it was a week litter. I don't know. That's just our experience with the one litter that I've had so far with them. Um, you know, other people may have had better success, stronger, easier feeding animals, but these guys were definitely a little tough for us to get going. And, you know, like I say, Ian's got a lot of experience with the boils and get babies going. So uh, we were really doing anything wrong. I think animals were just, you know, they wanted to be lizard feeders to get going. And, and that's what it took to I, get them started. I've, I've established quite a few difficult feeders, uh, like carpet pythons and, um, I've, you know, chondro babies and Amazons and stuff like that. And I, you know, I had one Amazon baby this year that just would not eat for me. Right. And I'm like, and I couldn't get it. I mean, I had tried everything, scenting, all kinds of stuff. Well, I had my buddy Forrest send me some chicks and, I uh, broke off a little chick thigh, you know, and, um, dude, like seconds. Yeah. There was no assist or teasing or anything. I put it next to its mouth, struck at it, wrapped it, and I have not been able to, to get it switched over. I have, I'm making headway there because I'm, I'm getting more interest. Yeah, but uh, isn't that you know, the strangest it, thing that the, that these animals will actually starve themselves to death when there's a viable prey item in front of them, totally reasonable for them to eat, but they would choose to starve themselves to death to take a pinky. Um, they want that little scent of foul there, and will take that like they've been feeding their whole life. It, it, it never ceases to yeah. amaze me. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah, that's on its it's on it's like it's fifth fifth meal of yeah. that right now it's just take no problem at all and at, at this size i mean a chick's eye i mean it's still getting the bone and stuff that's inside yeah. the leg yeah, so yeah. i mean it's it's probably more nutritious actually than a pinky right you know uh it, um um amazons to me that is the challenge of br- being an amazon treboa breeder is um the two challenges are, you know, getting a totally healthy, viable litter, not any stillborns or just unfertilized over or something after going through, you know, the 130 days or whatever of uh, gestation. And the, and the second hurdle for uh, Amazon tree boa breeders is to get them feeding. You know, they're, they're not the easiest babies to get feeding. Now, once you get 
confident and experienced with them, 99% of the time it's just a waiting game and don't sweat it and just wait them out and you'll get them all going. But when you first become an Amazon breeder and breeding Amazons, they can be very uh, stressful to, to, to get started until you understand the animals because they're not an easy one to really get feeding on on pinkies yeah. right off the bat. Yeah, it, they you have to kind of – to me, it makes sense. I, you know, they're from the rainforest, so they're going to see, like, chicks and, and birds. And, and they're t- if, I mean, if you just look at the mouth structure of pretty much all Corrales, they're designed to, to feed on birds. I right. mean, they've got the long teeth. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's, like, their primary – food source but i do think it probably makes up a decent part of their diet right right yeah so anyway yeah so so yeah the rosenberger i have been definitely a huge joy a huge um pleasant surprise to what i thought they would be and uh you know i definitely um like i like to have a few of these odds and ends and that's what these species are i don't see myself um getting more of the costa ricans but if somebody ever offered or i found a pair of a different locality i would not hesitate in a second to drop the money and pick up another pair of a different locale uh to have them because they're just really 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 awesome animals yeah, and, I, and they're one of those ones I think the value is going to go up on them. When people start, they're going to be, you know, they're going to have the, the variability that an Amazon has, I think. And um, with the more you, you breed into them and stuff, and yeah. I think that, that uh, the popularity is going to grow. Well, I, I've even seen, you know, so what I like in the Costa Ricans is looking for the animals that have more of the yellow golden color infused in that green. Um, whether it's in the scale separations or, or whatnot, because um, the banding isn't so intense on the animals that you can look for a deep patterned animal, but the tones of the overall background color of them are something that you can definitely pick and choose through different lines of the Costa Ricans to, uh, you know, see some variety there. And, and that's what I look for. I look for something with uh, a lot more of the yellows and goldens in that group. Sure green uh, base color you know yeah no i and that's one of the things i love about them is that color palette that you just mentioned yeah um and and the pattern you know i i like that dark the dark scales yeah that, that are on the you know i just think they're awesome yeah they are they're fantastic and and they get the, a little like you like you were saying earlier they get a little beefy so you know it's a nice substantial even if you just want a really cool looking display animal because they'll they'll be out perched they don't they don't tend to hide even as much as amazons if you give amazons hide you know they'll use them quite a bit but i find the uh roshan burger i to, to really want to perch and kind of be out in the open a lot more than than uh go into a hiding area yeah i mean they're more confident and that probably yeah. comes from the, their size but True. uh awesome well hey you know this has been uh well, this has been great and that I think we've got a lot of good information we've been able to put out there. It's been terrible because it's made me want to buy more snakes. <laughs> we kind of uh, go all over the place in our conversation. But like I said in the beginning, you know, two snake guys getting together talking snakes. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and I and I 
and it's three species that I'm absolutely fascinated with. So yeah. I was glad that we could talk about it. Yeah. In my yeah. mind, I really thought we were going to, I was going to be able to start with baby bull and I, how to take care of them, go to young adults, go to, and that never happens. You just kind of go all over the place with it, you know? <laughs> well, we, we can do a round through round two and I can send you like an outline or you there can you send go. me an outline. We try to stick hey, to it. Th- this is how you want to go. But I think you, I think you put a lot of good information out there. Good. You know, you know, and it's stuff that people can, you know, let marinate and and hopefully, you know, at the very least, it's entertaining for people to listen to. But I think there's some good good content. And and Jeff, that's that's what I love about I think and why like I'm trying to get away from the Facebook because because man, like meeting you and Tinley, like you know, you and I got to know each other by sitting face and face, having a beer or whatever, and talking to each other, you know, you get to know somebody that way. And carpet fest, you know, I talk to a lot of people that, you know, you talk to on Facebook and then when you meet them, it's a totally different demeanor and you really get to understand and, you know, get the feeling of that person and their passion. And it's just a whole new perspective. So I'm trying to do more of one-on-one contacts with people nowadays than multi, uh, you know, media, barrages of huge rants but i'm sure that'll draw me back in and i'll start doing them again too <laughs> yeah no and that's that's one thing that you know that's kind of how i am too because you can't get tone from a text or from right. facebook or any of that stuff it, it's hard you have to meet people in person and and I, okay so i'm gonna throw this out there this is not for sure but I am going, it's going to be a topic that I'm going to talk on when I'm going to be going on to the Condro, the GTP Keeper podcast as a guest. Awesome. Uh, J- July 14th, I believe. Uh-huh. And I have been talking with Buddy um, and also, uh, what's his face? Bill. I'm drawing a blank. Bill, yes. Um, because... I kind of wanted to do something similar to ICAST, but specifically for Corrales um, out here. Uh, but uh, in talking with them, uh, they kind of talked to me a little bit about some of the benefits, some of the difficulties and stuff with ICAST. And so may there may be something that might, come together next year i'm right i'm really really interested in doing something and doing kind of like a west coast icast i didn't want to like you know uh steal their thunder or do any you know kind of steal their idea or anything like that but you know they've kind of put it out there like dude like if if it's something you want to do right go for it right but it it takes a lot of planning so i'm kind of just i'm kind of just toying around with the idea but the reason being is because, you know, I, I want to meet people in person and, exactly. you know, and talk about, you know, stuff that isn't like ball pythons and stuff like right. that. Exactly. You know? Yep. No. Yep. So. Good stuff, man. All right. Well, hey, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, I'm sure they can do it through uh, Facebook, right? Facebook, private message me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always willing to talk snakes. Doesn't matter if I know you or don't know you. I will always get back to everybody that sends any kind of an inquiry or question or just wants to say hi. Please feel free to send me a message. Awesome. Hey, as always, it's great catching up with you. You're a friend and uh, I hope, uh, you know, we'll chat here soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye, Keith. Bye. 
Hey, don't bail just yet. We have one last word from our sponsors. So you guys know I'm a big fan of setting yourself apart from the competition. I'm a firm believer in branding yourself. It pays to be different and to have a consistent professional image. So we have our first international sponsor in Andrea Lupardini, all the way from Italy. Look him up on Facebook or on the web under Andrea Lupardini Design. He does everything from roll-ups to Facebook banners, logos, business cards. He has some really cool packages that you guys can choose from. Seriously, the guy has an eye for design and he specializes in reptile logos. Hell, he did my logo. I'm telling you guys, look him up. He's done a ton of work. He's got quite a resume. You can see his style, lots of different things to choose from, and it's all 100% custom. You're not gonna find your logo with somebody else. He does it exactly how you wanted it. For example, I wanted mine to have a Mayan theme. Well, he took care of me and exceeded my expectations. So, I just wanna give a quick shout out and a special thanks to all our sponsors. Without you guys, the show wouldn't be possible. And until next time, you've been listening to Corrales Radio.